Welcome to episode five of the Lean Change Management podcast. I'm Jason Little, the author of Lean Change Management, and this podcast is a rebuttal podcast. So the episode four podcast with Eric Lynn was around organizational culture. So we had a few main points that uh, we're going to debate here today. So um, I'm going to get started with uh, introducing the people who are on the panel today. So uh, we have Patrick, Peter, and Matthias. Patrick is uh, working right now as a BA, and he's located in Spain. Um, Peter's a scrum master who is uh, currently working in Berlin, and Matthias is working as an agile coach who uh, is based in Munich. So, Patrick, could I get you to just give me a quick introduction of yourself? Sure. Um, as she said, I'm Patrick, based in, based in Madrid. Um, I'm a business analyst in uh, a big multinational company, uh, 70,000 people big. And my daily job is um, mainly targeted towards the, the launch and the initiation of uh, transformation and change programs. So uh, the whole topic around uh, what impact does it have on people, uh, where is the impact on culture, uh, is, is for me of, uh, of high interest. Great. Welcome. Welcome to the podcast. I, I just remembered I went in the wrong order. I said I was going to start with Peter and I started with Patrick instead. Um, so, uh, Peter, how about you? Can you give us just a quick introduction of yourself? Um, as I said, as I said I'm Scrum Master. I started with my current company basically months ago, uh, but I have, let's say, uh, six or so years uh, in software development, uh, leading teams, transitioning from classical to agile. Great. Welcome. And Matthias, how about you? So, hi again. My name is Matthias, working as an agile coach um, since three years at EGYM, E-G-Y-M, uh, in Munich. And uh, currently I work as agile coach and I, I have a strong interest in um, system theories, deming, and topics like this. And I'm also interested in um, influence on cult of culture and on companies and how to, especially how to scale small startups where I started working in three years ago into uh, mid-sized corporations like we have now over 200 people and growing, uh, how to transform those and how to keep a startup culture in there. Thanks. Excellent. So our podcast with uh, Eric, we, we talked a lot about how organizations try to intentionally manage or change the culture. And uh, my world is, is in the agile community as well. So when I go in and work with clients, uh, organizations of any size, sometimes I would say the majority of them actually are asking for how can we change our culture? How can we change our mindset? How can we get more of this agile culture? And they kind of uh, focus on how do we measure our existing culture? How do we put a stake in the ground of what our new culture needs to be? And then how do we manage it to uh, have that new culture emerge? And uh, the last podcast, we talked about how we feel that's kind of the backwards approach. It's... Um, culture is going to evolve through deep, meaningful conversations. And I was curious uh, what your stance, and when I say your, I mean the, the three of you, what are your thoughts and what have you seen around um, this fuzzy concept of how do we change our organizational culture? Um, basically, I'm 
I, I didn't experience that um, or I, do, I don't um, encounter the question how can we change the culture it's more like um, in a growing ex startup it's more like how can we preserve the culture so from my point of view um, we should preserve um, or we should keep companies um, at a very informal level as long as possible or put up some kind of structure where informal levels uh, informal conversations um, or processes are able to grow and um, and not and, and and we should kind of preserve the the trust in each other even though we are growing and um, and I think it comes in the end it comes down to trust because um, uh, processes um, kind of emerge if people want to formalize their communication because they don't trust each other. My point of view, but I'm happy to hear what you have to say. Right. So what, what uh, challenges do you see as you grow? Like what's the, what's the trigger to avoid doing some of the things that organizations do when they try and scale us, they tend to over-specialize. So, you know, now we need to create these new structures in our organization and we need to create more documents. We need to create more functional groups to deal with all these different types of things that just happen when we start to scale and preserving the culture how uh, have you seen something um, that's been helpful to try and not go down that road? Um, yeah, there are some 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 good some good uh, yeah some good uh, rules we kind of established like like uh, always try to try to adhere to the agile manifesto for instance whenever we are able to talk to each other. We do it, and we try not to. Um, like we, in our teams, we don't try, we don't estimate things. We don't um, f formally define uh, when uh, our story is done. Um, we just we just present what we what we uh, understood and developed it, and then we present it in our team, and we say, okay, um, are we able to do that experiment? Uh, what we what we kind of had had in our mind. With those tools we we programmed, or with this interface we did, and if if it's good and we are able to um, kind of test our hypothesis with that, then we go go for it. And if not, we just say it and say, okay, I would change this and that. Um, so to kind of preserve that communication aspect and not overformulate things. This is on, on the small scale. On the big scale, we uh, try to. Um, document as much as we can not for the sake of we have to document so that it's kind of a file somewhere more like it's in it's in living documentation that everyone um, is able to pick up where another one yeah left the work behind or um, or is kind of sick and somebody has to step in that we can help out each other so and that we don't create silos. Um, I think this is most important to so don't create silos and make the company as open as possible. So, and, and yeah, so that everyone has a basic understanding what the other team does, what the other department does. And yeah, be a big family. But it becomes harder and harder 
<laughs> right. So it sounds a lot like putting in the, the minimal amount of structure when it's necessary to do it, but, but not going overboard. Okay. So that'd be interesting to see how that, that evolves over time. So I know it's, it can be pretty tempting when uh, I've worked for three, three companies that have gone through fairly explosive growth and it becomes very difficult to um, try and, uh, I guess, fight against the desire to put too much structure in place. But if you don't put enough structure in place in the early going, then if you grow too fast, it can be a lot more difficult to get a handle on that down the road. Um, Patrick, you had a point that you wanted to mention. Yeah, I think a couple of them. Um, I think your structure is a function of your culture. Um, when I joined my company, uh, we were already a big company. Um, but what you see is that it is at a corporate level in the multinational, not easy, not to say very difficult, um, to drive one vision, one set of behaviors, um, one set of values that can be lifted by everybody across the globe. Um, and this, there will always be, in my experience, um, an add-on, if I'm going to like that, for uh, local values because of difference in business environments, uh, different difference in, in legacy, in history, and um, in, in so many things that it's... Um, it's very tough to claim as a multinational that you have one organizational culture. Um, another aspect what you see, what I see in my company, and what I think is um, one of the struggles of, of big or bigger corporations is that culture starts to become um, a set of activities, a set of things to do um you can read nowadays a lot about um about, about defining a purpose for a company for example and many companies start uh, especially the bigger ones to set up their uh, corporate social responsibility program they launch a foundation um, but all of that is not in line with the values that are being displayed within the company. Uh, all of that is not in line with the behaviors that people um, display in the company. Uh, so it, it, it's, it's one of them is managed independently in a good way, but it doesn't tie together. Right. Tying that together is what would make a real company culture, uh, which is in, in a company that exists for 60, 70, 80 years, uh, and is really an international player, is, is really a, a very tough job to do. Right. I had a really good conversation with uh, Donna Jones, who um, uh, blogs at uh, mm -hmm. from InsightToAction.com. She wrote the book Decision Making for Dummies um, at a conference recently, and we talked about that multinational cultural issue as well and how the stance is typically how do we create a consistent culture uh, across all of our multinational locations? And we, we don't, you know, we, uh, an organization goes into a new country and tries to instill their corporate values and culture on a social culture that is 
not in line with what this company's stance needs to be. So instead of letting, instead of expanding and, and allowing that social culture in whatever region or country the, the, the new locations are being created in, um, they try and force those people to change and behave differently, which we don't think is the right stance to do as well. So how, how do we, how do we communicate our values as an organization, the value we deliver to our customers and let those cultures emerge and evolve? This is an area where I started to to read and work um, a lot on over the past year. Um, I've figured out that there are, uh, and you make the statement here as well, no? there are conversational type of exercises that you can that you can, that you can start with. Um, there's uh, hands-on methodologies, if you want to call them, or um, that that you can apply. Uh, of course, not uh, these are not exercises that you can design today or you can agree on today and, and deploy to 70,000 people tomorrow. But as you say, in the case of opening offices in a new country, um, there are certain things that you, um, certain hands-on exercises that you, that you could start working on. Um, being as simple as asking the people uh, to share their um, their stories, what do they recognize in their past uh, activities? That when you when you show them the values that you are expecting um, uh, to become part of their culture. No? So if you you <clears throat> maybe a an, an, an very direct uh, example from from my own company, we have accountability as one of our corporate values. Well, you, you ask the people to to give you some stories in, in one or two lines. Uh, give, give me some moments of impact the way you believe that accountability plays a, a role. Is to have the people think about what those values mean. You're not imposing them on them, but you're asking them their, their stories about them. You can collect that and you can have these conversations with them about what is similar, what's different, but accountability might mean something different in one country than it means in another country. In countries that have a hierarchical legacy in their business environment, accountability means something different than when you go to a country like the Netherlands, where I'm originally from. Well, they're, they're much more loose around the whole topic of accountability. You, you just make sure that you make a you do what you have to do and you you make sure that it gets done. There's much more that kind of mentality. Well, here in Spain, the people look much more to management. Uh, and if they feel that they are getting stuck, they they even uh, wait for management to tell them what to do next. They have their ideas of what they can do next, but it's just not common in this business environment to take the action without approval. And that's a legacy, and you have to work with that. Right. I, I see a lot of that in North America, more specifically in, in the States. Um, so I'm, I'm in Canada, and it's, it's a little bit different up here as opposed to um, what is, is in the States. But there's that fear of, of going first or people taking action and then they've been burned too many times in the past. So it's not that they don't want to try something different or try and do something to 
um, shift the culture a little bit, but they've been, it's learned behavior. They've, they've tried, people have tried running experiments or tried to do little changes or things like that. And they've sort of stepped outside of the hierarchy to do that. And then they get in trouble for doing that. Um, I, I like that you mentioned around the, the accountability and, uh, I, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but there's there's a trend, uh, at least in North America, of you know moving towards bringing in a chief cultural officer. So it's we, when we want to evolve all, our culture to something new. Again, we we bring in a VP of culture, and we, they are now accountable and responsible for changing it. So now, if they're doing that job, what does HR do now? Because isn't that something that uh, HR groups are working on as well? Isn't that something that everyone in the company is supposed to own? And uh, that's where I think we get into the problem of people uh, using, you know, assessment tools like uh, competing values framework, um, which on top of that sits the OCAI assessment and framework. How can we assess our current state? How can we put a stake in the ground and then measure our VP of culture to make sure that he or she is is uh, accountable for making our culture work, which I think is backwards. Um, have, you, have you guys seen that trend uh, in Europe as well, moving towards having uh, a chief cultural officer or a VP of culture or something like that? Uh, a chief, a chief, I'm not sure, with the... Um my company um, is bought by another big company. Um, so from March next year, we'll go uh, under a new name. Uh, and in the announcement of the, the list of first two layers of executives, there is one person assigned to cultural integration for whatever that means. So it's recognized as something very important. But that's, uh, that's a plus. Uh, now, how these people do that? I, I shared some of my ideas with them. I haven't gotten any response back yet, because of course these people have their daily job and they have all the preparations for uh, for the takeover uh, on their plate. So I'm not expecting any short-term responses to that, but I hope I give them some uh, some of the points that I'm making right now as well no? on uh, to, to think about it, to give it some thought. But yeah, I think I think it, it, it's coming. The awareness is coming. Uh, a cultural and, and VP of culture. Um, if I would have to decide, I would rather appoint an, an, an culture coordination team, uh, and preferably even with a direct reporting line. This is kind of a freelance team within the company that has a direct reporting line to the CEO rather than placing it anywhere. I'm a fan of that that approach as well is keep it informal and create more people who work in the white space of the of the org chart. So they're not bound by the hierarchy. They're not bound by existing structures. They can do the things that they need to do because it's what they're passionate about. There's, there's an interesting example, um, an exercise that I found from uh, Jim Collins. I think it was Jim Collins. But I'm thinking, I think it was Jim Collins. It's called the Mission to Mars. Well, you actually ask the people to point out uh, five to seven names of people that they believe that represent best the corporate culture as they believe that it is today. Uh, just add up all the names and you take the top 10 or the top 15, and you make them your 
your your your coordinating culture team because you, you immediately involve people that have high visibility that many people look at already um and it's, it's kind of an early adapter group yeah that's a good approach I once visited a, a company, uh, Future Ice in Finland, and they have what they call organizational scrum masters. And uh, I don't know if they still follow the same thing. This was quite a while ago, a few years ago. And these organizational scrum masters basically roamed the countryside, for the lack of a better phrase, and went where they were needed. So they would help with facilitation. It was more in an agile context, um, but they weren't really bound by being in a certain department or you know, working under a certain director type of thing. They were kind of free to go where their expertise were needed. And I thought that was a really cool concept. I think we undervalue the value of informal networks in organizations and try to fight the problems that we've created with too much structure by putting in more structure and more specialization. So the, uh, one of the other things that we talked about in the previous podcast was the, the concept of buy-in. So that again uh, is something that is center stage in North America, at least, is how do we get people to buy in? How do we get people to buy into this change? How do we get people to buy into the agile mindset or the agile culture or whatever it is that we're trying to do? And uh, our stance, uh, Eric and I, was the concept of buy-in is that's what creates resistance to change, is I have a concept and I want you guys to buy into it. I have to sell it to you and get you to buy in instead of using more of a co-creation approach, which is involve you in the design of whatever this change will be or involve you in the conversations of how we're going to evolve our, our culture. So we feel that the whole concept of buy-in is just an outdated uh, term and it needs to go away. Um, have you guys seen challenges with, you know, you may be tasked to, create some type of change or implement some type of change. And the expectation is that you're going to go off in an office somewhere and create this awesome plan and then get people to buy into it. And uh, have you seen it work? Uh, have you seen it not work? Uh, what are your thoughts around that concept of buy-in? Buy-in uh, or selling, selling something uh, to people, a concept or something like that. It's for me a little bit unagile. <laughs> of course, um, Usually uh, you have a raw concept in your mind, but um, to be fair, nobody can can predict the future and can um, claim to um, to have full knowledge about what uh, how people will react if they apply something on them, especially in a complex environment where people are individuals. And um, so, if if I try to sell a concept and I and I tell people, okay, if you if you do it like I say, then you will be happy. I, I don't think this that this will work out. And um, of course, um, in the first in the first uh, years of being scrummers, I tried that um, to to apply uh, the concepts uh, I was told in the, the scrummaster course um, and say, this is great. You have to do this and you have to do that. And of course, this doesn't work. Um, I had to learn this and uh, now my approach is more that I make suggestions and ask people to collaborate with me uh, for to to uh, work on a solution on their own and 
be more like, yeah, be more like a mentor to them, to help them find the solutions fitting to them. That's so I, I had the situation. I tried to get a buy-in, but um, I failed, and I guess everyone, everyone fails, and if they don't, if they don't admit that, then maybe something's wrong. Have you seen the problem where maybe there's too much expectation on you being the person that's going to get this change to work? Then if you try a more of a co-creation type of model by involving people, then, you know, it might reflect negatively on you because, you know, you're the person that we've tapped to make this change work. Um, um, actually, I talked about, I talked with a friend uh, today at lunch about this. Um, and and uh, we, we talked about that and we, we came to the conclusion that there are two different types of teams and two different types of cultures. Those who anticipate that you are the guy who solves all their problems and they expect that from you, that you know all the answers in the meetings, that you can provide all the uh, means necessary at the workshop to make them understand. And if you don't do that, then you are, yeah, then you are not worthy of the role or something like that. But I, um, thankfully I never, um, I never had that situation. I mean, there's so maybe one has to distinguish between uh, professionals who do that. Then they're kind of stubborn, I guess, or, uh, or like I didn't, I didn't, uh, I was not in this situation. Hopefully, uh, thankfully, uh, but when I faced that, was more like uh, there were really inexperienced people, and they thought, "Okay, he can help us. We don't know what to do." And and they looked at big eyes uh, with big eyes at me and thought, "Okay, he can help us." Um, but with this group, it's really easy to tell them that they have the power within themselves to help themselves. Um, and I had the I was lucky enough to never face the second group of professional people um, telling me that I to find a solution for their problems. I, I experienced that uh, once. I think a, few, a couple of years ago, I was part of a change team and uh, this organization was using a, a change method called ADCAR and ADCAR is an acronym um, uh, meaning awareness, desire, knowledge, ability, reinforcement. And the reinforcement of ADCAR is things like uh, what is reinforcing this change in the organization. So the way this organization did this is they put the survey out and you had to answer from zero to five, you know, what your level is on each of those five dimensions. When it came to reinforcement, I put zero out of five and I was part of the change team. So I got dragged into my boss's office and, uh, you know, why did you put a zero? You can't be a zero. You have to be a five. You're part of the change team. And for me, it was pretty simple. It was, well, you know, the expectation is that we are going to shove this change through and I see no reinforcing structures from leadership here that they're actually taking this seriously or supporting it. You know, people don't show up to our transformation meetings. Uh, people cancel things. You know, no one's taking it seriously but us. So once I see that reinforcement, you know, maybe I'll move up the ladder. And uh, I think that's a hard thing for some change people, whether it's trying to change the culture or bring in agile or whatever it is. Um, setting those expectations at the start is I'm going to 
bring my toolkit and my skills and help facilitate this change. But no one person or handful of people are, you know, the the magic makers that are going to magically make this change happen. It, it has to be a group effort, and we're there to sort of put up guardrails and facilitate that happening. Never heard about this at car, but um, we'll look into it. And yeah, I couldn't be the reinforcer myself either, I guess. Sometimes it comes down to time. I mean, re the, the reinforcement is just, it takes people time to learn. It takes people time to create meaning uh, for whatever this change is, if it's a, a culture shift or bringing in Agile or whatever it is. People have to be able to build a mental bridge between where they're at and what this new state will be. And and that just takes time. The, the reinforcement part is putting in support structures in place to you know, to give people time and space so they can attach that meaning to it. I think we use more of a combination. If we, we deliver projects, we, um, we normally have an internal aftercare period. So the people that are affected by the change are the first two or three weeks called into um, a 15, 20 minute a daily meeting. Uh, where they can just say everything, uh, what they want. This is going well, this is not going well, and uh, issues are listed and being worked, actually worked and resolved. Uh, and that frequency is then slowed down. But one of the things that they put in there as well is um, a measurement on how many people have adopted the, the new behaviors, the new tools, the new ways of working. So it's transparent. It's, it gives visibility from one team to the other one. Um, and the good thing is that you have user groups or, or uh, people affected by the change with difference of, in, in opinions. So you also get a discussion um, on why this is good for somebody and not so good for somebody else. And then you can always try to, to find ways to, to deal with or to make life better for those that don't feel that much the benefit of the changes as the ones that do. And this is an interesting, uh, it's, not, it's not even being done on purpose, I think. It's, uh, it's just called out of necessity, but it has some, uh, some very, very interesting side effects for the, the acceptance and the reinforcement of change. Right, good point. Um, so we're going to start uh, wrapping up. We're coming up against our time box here. Uh, any last thoughts around organizational culture before we wrap up? Well, maybe one, one, uh, one last remark on the buy-in. Um, I believe that in, again, multinational companies, uh, big companies, you need to have a certain level of buying, some might call it sponsorship, um, and that's a real practical experience. I've, I've started a couple of times with um, uh, self-organizing um, small teams, communities around change, and they actually all block or explode at a given point in time if you do not get uh, an, an sponsorship of buy-in from people higher up in, in the hierarchy at a given point in time. So buy-in has some uh, some added value, especially in, in bigger companies, though uh, at, at the peer-to-peer -peer level, it is really just 
the conversation about, hey, uh, what do you think about this? I, I would like to try something. Uh, are you with me? Uh, it's just that question. No? And if you can get people enthusiastic for an, an idea, then you, you can go ahead. Is that buy-in? I don't know. It, it's not really an, an, a focused approach to get people to buy into your ID. It's really the, the coffee machine kind of conversation where you can share opinions and, and positions and perspectives, uh, which might then lead to, hey, let's, let's meet up uh, once uh, every, every two or three weeks for half an hour and see uh, if there's something that we can do together. For me, it sounds a little more like support as opposed to buy-in. So yeah, we have support from from the leadership group. Uh, yeah, but also say it's, it sounds it sounds like a trust thing here. It, it, usually, you don't try to sell at this point. You just tell, you just talk about things, and they trust you to do the right thing. Then, yeah, it's, it's sponsorship, no? But it, the. In, in the end, uh, what, what you're trying to do, as is, is put in the second sentence here now as well, it, you try to sell your ID, maybe not to someone else, but up the chain. If you can't get that done, then you can try as much as you want at the peer-to-peer level. But eventually, it, it won't help you to, to really make a lasting positive impact. It is very hard to do. And you really have to sell it to them. Because they have so much on their plates, or claim they have so much on their plates, they have to leave in the middle. Besides listening to you, so getting on their agenda, selling your idea, um, absorbing uh, the the pushback and the feedback, and and, and counterattacking that or countering that in, in a way that they say, okay, now I support you. It's it's pure selling. It is a tough job. Yeah, I get your point, and I also think that it's really, really hard to get sometimes, but it's necessary to facilitate yeah. change. Absolutely. It's not a matter of trust. It's not that they don't trust me. It's just that, okay, what kind of wild ID do you have now? And this is not the right timing for wild IDs. And then you go with your, with your, your sales pitch, explaining them that this is not a wild ID, but it's actually an extension of what they're already planning to do. Um, it's a bit more uh, novel. It's not a 20th century approach, but a 21st century approach. And then they already wake up a little bit. Uh, so there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of selling and argumentation that, that needs to come with that. Uh, so, so buying of the masses, uh, how, how do you roll this out towards uh, the, 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 the company, your change, your change initiative, your experiments? No, I don't believe buying is needed there. Uh, it's in me, but you say co-creation. Involve the people, um, uh, make sure that they feel like they're a part of it, that they've designed it, that they've defined it, that they help with it, that it is theirs. But there is always a little bit of, in, in, again, in, in, my, in my type of situations, no? in, in, in big corporations, there's always a moment where you have to be ready to do some buying activities. Right. So yeah. it's it's all about the distinction between buying uh, of the masses and buying uh, up the food chain. Yep. Okay. For me, yes. My, in my experience, yes. 
All right. So uh, thanks very much to, to Peter, Matthias, and Patrick for joining today. Uh, Peter had to head out a little bit early. But if you'd like to learn uh, a little bit more, you can follow Matthias on Twitter. Uh, and his Twitter handle is Matthias Gorf, M-A-T-H-I-A-S-G-O-R-F. Hopefully I did not butcher the pronunciation. And uh, Patrick uh, blogs uh, at newheartway.wordpress.com. These will be in the show notes as well. So if you want to learn a little bit more about their background and things that they're passionate about, I encourage you to check those out. And if you're interested in participating in a future podcast, you can find more information and previous episodes at leanchange.org slash podcast. So thanks very much for joining, guys. I appreciate the conversation. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, Jason.